0: is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr. Mick Pope. This episode, and the one that follows, is entitled Loving Your Neighbour in a Warming World. And it's a program about climate justice. It's based upon a book I wrote in 2017 entitled A Climate of Justice, Loving Your Neighbour in a Warming World. And I wrote this for the Justice Conference, which is a global conversation about biblical and social justice in Australia sponsored by uh, TIA, so a Christian aid advocacy organization. So before we get into the meat of that, I want to get us to think a little bit about justice as a concept and it seems to me, in my dealings with people in general, and in the church in particular, there are two broad kind of takes, if you will, on justice, and they're often polarized, but I think unnecessarily so. The first first view is what you might call the law and order view, and that oftentimes I think presents what's known as a deontological view of ethics. That's deontological. That's a big word, but it means that the morality of an action should be based on whether the action itself is right or wrong under a series of rules. So it's a rule-based approach rather than based on the consequences of the action, like utilitarianism, the idea that you're more interested in consequences. So it's it's rule-based, rule, rule law-based. So, you know, it's that kind of law-abiding citizen type uh, understanding and you know, and you hear it, for example, at the moment in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement, when people will say something like, I don't mind protests so long as they are non-violent. Without perhaps any exploration of where the violence might stem from. And just as an aside, I read something just recently that 93% of the Black Lives Matter protests in the USA are non-violent. Uh, in Christian circles... Uh, People often quote Romans 13, say for example, verses 1 and 2 read, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now it's another time, another episode, and another person to interview on my long list that's building to talk about how to best understand Romans 13. But you can see on the face of it, you might very well say, well, you should obey the authorities, you shouldn't trespass, you shouldn't protest, etc., etc. In this view, I think that the state or society often replaces God in a secular setting. And what I mean by that is that the state dispenses justice and we talk about the wrongdoer paying their debt to society. So it's this idea that if you can't, if you don't want to do the time, you shouldn't do the crime. and And that's fair enough in a sense that people, when they break laws, good, just, solid laws, should understand that they're moving outside of the social contract and there is a price to pay for that. It's not always in proportion to that, and you'll have people talking about the appropriateness of sentencing in this case, either one way or the other. In Christian circles, again, they might be the sorts of people you talk about as Ten Commandment Christians, those who'd like to see the Ten Commandments in public places, and it will stress obedience to those. Now, don't take by my tone for a minute that I'm saying that law and order approach to things is a bad thing. Taken to one extreme, I think that it is. But in of itself, I think that it's a good thing. I'm a big believer in law and in order. Let's take the concept of order, for example. And I think I've talked about this in a previous episode. In Genesis chapter 1, it's all about God imposing order on chaos. And that order is for agricultural crops, a regular cycle of seasons, for the organization of the Israelite festivals, and for the good of both the human and the non-human. We don't want to exist in chaos. I don't think that I properly understand the various movements in anarchism, but I don't feel particularly drawn to anarchy as a concept. I'm sure most anarchists don't per se, um, but I'm attracted to order. Not stifling order, but order nonetheless. Torah, which is the Hebrew for the law in the Old Testament, covered all aspects or facets of society. And so it wasn't simply about performing religious duties, but of course there was thou shalt do no murder and it talked about financial transactions and cultic purity and what to do with human bodily waste and all manner of things. It's all embracing. Interestingly enough, this is what I think Sharia law is about. And of course that's a big bogeyman in the media, but what it tells you is that in the Islamic ideal the entire of life is ordered by their religious views. And that was the case for Israel, and it's certainly the case for some Christians as well, that they have this understanding, of course we all do it in some way, shape or form, that your faith is not simply a private compartmentalized view of the world. This is a modern understanding and something that's peculiar to the Western world. In most times and most places, there's no such thing as a personal public uh, split. There's no such thing as secular government versus spiritualized private life it's all one piece Uh, and there are benefits and and the plus and minuses to that obviously Uh, this goes back to john locke who said that government lacked a role or authority in the realm of individual conscience and therefore also religious belief which sets up uh, or distinguishes between church and state and therefore sets up its its division between the two the separation and that can cut in many ways and by and large that's that's a good thing but the idea that you enter the public sphere and you must become somehow neutral in some metaphysical sense, is a nonsense, because no one is. It's simply often raised as a way of silencing religion in the public sphere. But again, I can understand why that might be the case, given some of the awful examples of when it manifests. Uh, I've talked about uh, law and order view in terms of paying a debt. Sometimes it contains elements of rehabilitation, but that doesn't seem to be how our... our um, legal system functions as a matter of course and in some places uh, the law and order view uh, the role of the state places itself as the final arbiter in the form of the death sentence but it seems to me that this is very much an individualistic view it's the individual before the law it talks about individual responsibility theologically we might um Channel Edwards at this point and talk about sinners in the hands of an angry God uh, and the individual choice to accept the gospel, which is a big thing in some evangelical circles if you believe in choice. So that's the kind of, if you like, the law and order view. On the other hand, there is what's uh, referred to in what I think in one sense is a rather unfortunate phrase, social justice. Let me give you an example in Australia. Among juveniles between 10 to 17 years of age, 54% of detainees are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. On an average night, and this is these figures are three years old now, but nonetheless, on an average night, 34 in every 10,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people are in prison, compared to 1.3 per 10,000 non Indigenous youth. 34 in every 10,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people, 1.3 Per 10,000 non-Indigenous youth. Now, you can trot out the line that if you don't break the law, you won't fall foul of it. Um, And of course, a number of these instances are cases of mandatory censusing, seeing people incarcerated for quite trivial things. Or you could, you know, or you could go the other way or go further rather and say, well, somehow they must be more criminal than others. And no one would say that out loud, I would hope. Or you have to embrace the idea that somehow, despite the fact that yes, people have the choice to break or not break a law in in one sense, that there are systemic injustices that create conditions and people are getting locked up for no good reason at all or the breaking of, of fairly trivial laws in the grand scheme of things. Another example would of course be what comes out of the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S., where people are rightly saying that, yes, even resisting arrest, even resisting arrest is no excuse for murder. We must understand from a Christian point of view that social justice is not the social gospel. We're not saying that salvation simply comes when there's political liberation or you know when there's improvement in the lot of people's lives per se. Nonetheless, so we don't have to go down the Reformation rabbit warren of faith versus works, but nonetheless, while one can't equate social transformation or liberation, political liberation with the gospel, the gospel without these, as a result, is anemic to suggest that somehow or other, the gospel is just about the inner life, is anemic, it's dualistic, it is Gnostic. The gospel is not just a message about going to heaven when you die. It's not a post-mortem life insurance policy. But it's nothing short of the transformation of the whole world, starting with the individual in the context of a community known as the church and then modelling another way of being and hopefully transforming the world around it. So what I find is then, ultimately, all justice is social. Good laws and good order work for all people. But oftentimes it appears to function for the few. And so when we talk about justice in the law and order sense, well, whose laws and what kind of order? You can have a perfectly ordered society with slavery. In fact, we've had it. But that's not just, it's not moral. And sometimes law and order types will say, well, you know, If you've broken the law, if you've stolen a few dollars or stolen some food, yes, you deserve jail time or a fine or whatever else, but what if you're a company that pollutes a river? What if you're a company that pollutes a river or a stream or a gulf in the pursuit of something that's otherwise decided to be a good to pursue, like oil, on which to fuel society? Pardon the pun. Where progress is important. But isn't the pollution breaking a law? Well, that's okay. We'll tinker with the EPA or some other institution because these laws aren't nearly as important as all the other laws that we think are more important. And, you know, in evangelical circles, for example, there's a tension between reproduction and those kind of laws and those surrounding so-called social justice, like environmental issues, etc., which is precisely what this whole podcast is kind of exploring So there's a split between the so-called social justice warriors and the law and order people on which law should really have teeth and which ideas are really important. But surely it's a false dichotomy. As I've said, if something is just for one, it should be just for all. What is the role of of justice but to lift up all ships, all boats, and not just simply lift up uh, one particular group of people? So what I want to do now, and what I'll certainly do um, through the next half of the program, is to think about some ideas of justice from the Bible. And I'll certainly be pinching quite heavily from my book, because why do the hard work twice? So let's start at the last couple of minutes of this half of the program with a bit of a teaser. while I find the reference, the page? Okay, here we are. So there's a really... uh, There's a lot of good books, okay? So I've written an introductory book, but there's a lot of good books on justice in the Bible that you can pick up. And I can't possibly do justice, yeah, pun intended, in these programs uh, to do, you know, real justice to the idea of justice. Instead, what I hope to do in the next couple of programs is to pick out the highlights and show that justice is at the heart of both Testaments, both the Old and the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. In the mind of God, the Father and the Son and the Spirit too. Justice was for Israel and now it is for the scattered people of God throughout the world, that is the church, and of course for the people in which we live with and share our lives together. So the key verse to start with is one that might be familiar to, to Christians who consider themselves social justice warriors, whatever, is Micah 6, eight. He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So there's three actions that were required of Micah's readers, both the royal households and the peoples of Samaria and Jerusalem, who engaged in idolatry and engaged in injustice. And the first is to do justice, and that whole idea we will explore in the second half of the program. Well, welcome back. At the end of the first half of the program, we just started to look at Micah 6, eight. He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Justice is not just something that we talk about or be in love with the idea of, as Eugene Cho often says. Justice is something that is done. Now, the Hebrew word, and I'm not going to lay on biblical languages too much when I can in this podcast, but nonetheless, the Hebrew word translated as justice here is the word mishpat, mishpat. Now, Tim Keller, in his book on justice, talks about the fact that mishpat has a range of meanings. And you can go to, and this is how I study, you go to the Interlinear Bible online, and then you click on the word mishpat and you find out it's various uses, and you'll see that sometimes it's used in precisely the kind of law and order sense that we were talking about, but very often, too, it's used to mean giving people their rights. And when I say that, I don't mean some individualistic will to power, to borrow a phrase from philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, some libertarian ideal. You know, I want my rights and I want them now. Can I see the manager? Uh, Certainly, Karen. Uh, But rights in the biblical... Biblical sense means the opportunity to fully flourish as a human being made in the image of God. You know, so Genesis 1, 26 to 31, to exercise dominion, we'll need to define that properly another time, wisely, and to do so corporately, and it be allowed to flourish. But the sting in the tail, of course, is that the whole of creation is meant to flourish as well. But nonetheless, that's what your right is, as made in the image of God. Now, very often these rights to flourish in the Hebrew Bible are applied to the most vulnerable and needy in society. They're the widows and the fatherless because their inheritance in the land and their income, etc. came down the male side, the stranger or alien, and the poor. And you can see that in Zechariah 10, uh, sorry, Zechariah 7, verses 10 to 11, and Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 18, for example. Now, it's often said that God shows preferential care for the poor. This will upset some carts, But it's not that God finds the rich less lovable. You know, you think about um, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent his son not just to the poor, but Jesus spent a lot of time with them. Um, But as Nicholas Walserstorf notes, the poor are both more vulnerable to injustice and much more likely to suffer it. Because power will always, if you like, um, accumulate in the hands of the powerful. So will money and rights and and so on so in other words those least likely to be able to flourish are the poor so mishpat is what we might call restorative justice and that's simply the idea that people have an original state of dignity is made in the image of god and if something or other be it some natural disaster or it's an unjust system deprives them of that dignity then mishpat calls us forward to restore people to that now keller also maintains that justice that is mishpat reflects the character of god justice is what god does because justice is who god is Uh, this mishpat is to the oppressed hungry prisoners blind those bowed down the just immigrants fatherless and widows see for example psalm 146 and Don't be drawn into the idea that somehow this quote-unquote social justice understanding of the Bible is only related or only pertains to the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. When Jesus read the scroll from Isaiah in the synagogue in Galilee, many of these groups were also listed in what he had to say. So Jesus claimed that he fulfilled this scripture as the one sent to preach the gospel to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, bring sight to the blind, and indeed he did that, uh, set the oppressed free and proclaim the Jubilee year, the year of the Lord's favour. So remember, Jubilee, it's an economic reset as well as a rest for the land. Pretty radical stuff, isn't it? Preachers will typically pass over that because, of course, the world around us is still economically unjust and the powerful rule over the powerless and the poor and so on. But that's not what Jesus called us to accept. How you obtain that is another thing, non violently, organically, from the ground up. Or at least that's the position of the poor on the way. What, what happens if you have the opportunity to have greater influence in the political realm? Well, that's another question for another time. But So it's a bit hard to miss the connection. Jesus was all about kingdom justice precisely because even though it was kept secret until the end, the so called messianic secret, Jesus was the king of Israel, their long-promised Messiah, and therefore was bringing the kingdom of God in and the justice that characterizes that kingdom. Um, and you see a pointing to that in John the Baptist's declaration that Jesus was the long-promised liberator, see Matthew 11. Or in fact, that's what Jesus said to, to tell john the baptist that yes he was the person he thought he would be so what is more even though the church now consists of people scattered around the world uh, as the people of god not in one country but everywhere we are to live justly as god is animated by his mercy and justice so uh should we be being other focus and giving Now, Jesus appears to have taught the Lord's Prayer on at least two occasions. And in Matthew's version, Jesus commands us to forgive our debtors. Uh, Jesus, so that's Matthew 6. Jesus told his followers, which includes us, of course, to invite the poor in for dinner. Luke 14. If we are to be peacemakers, it shows that we are those who have been blessed by God. That's Matthew 9. Paul continues this idea when he tells us to support the weak, presumably the poor, because Jesus had said it was more blessed to give than receive, which is an otherwise unrecorded saying. And Paul himself modeled this by not taking wages for his ministry. And you read about that in Acts 20. In 2 Corinthians 8, he argues for collecting money for other churches in need based on the provision of manna in the desert wanderings of Israel. So he's drawing directly from the Hebrew Bible and saying this is what we should do. uh, Economic, if you like, mishpat in this context. And in the, the Desert Wanderings, of course, everyone had enough to eat, no more and no less, no matter how hard you laboured. And of course, if you kept any back, it went off the next day. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul argues against lawsuits among believers, where those who are wronged and defrauded do the same thing to others. And of course, it's at least in part appeal to the fact that you bought justice in the ancient world. So the, the rich were the ones who were best off because they could afford to pay off. Now, you might ask at some point, point. I raised this point earlier, isn't justice also about punishment? Don't we talk about doing justice when someone is in jail, as I said earlier, for his or her crimes? Don't we talk about Jesus on the cross fulfilling God's justice by receiving the punishment he deserves? Isn't part of justice punitive? And what about hell? And I'm just not going to touch any of these ideas directly, but the first thing to note that God does punish injustices... But steadfast or covenant love is primary. So Numbers 14, 18. And of course, in Micah 6, 8, when it says uh, that you are to uh, love kindness, the word kindness is chesed, which is God's covenant love. So it's not just about punishment. And the primary nature of love, of course, is demonstrated in John three sixteen. Salvation and not judgment is what God wants, and you can read it on after three sixteen, about seventeen to twenty one. So while justice sometimes involves punishment, in Christ we see how restoration is the goal. I mean, Jesus is hanging on the cross and prays for those who crucified him. So surely the goal is ultimately about restoration and not about punishment. And Jesus, of course, commands us to do the same. Uh, to forgive those and love those who persecute us and pray for them doing justice that is purely punitive if indeed that's the case is not ultimately our task even if it is god's so you see that in romans 9 19 to 20 vengeance is mine says the lord so it's not ultimately the business of the church we're involved in the case of restorative justice if it's clear then that the church, like Israel, is bound to do justice within its own community, what about the you know the outside world, the quote-unquote non-Christians, the secular world? Is justice only for the church itself? Well, yes and no, in the sense, of course, that it's those in Christ who can, in the Christian framework, truly understand divine forgiveness and restoration. But in the Old Testament, at least, we read that God has a concern for the injustices of the nations, and not only when they are against the people of God. So if you read Amos 1, 1 to 2.4 you see this lovely inward spiral of prophetic critique of the surrounding nations before focusing in on judah and israel it's a real sucker punch for the original listeners or readers these nations are charged for the brutality and war against each other and they were clearly expected to remember that every human being is made in the image of god and therefore should be treated justly and fairly remember that jesus healed a roman centurion slave who could have been jewish or from anywhere in the empire Paul called the Galatians to do good to all particularly, but not exclusively towards those in the household of faith. That's in Galatians 6, 9 to 10. So justice, God's restorative mishpat, can be extended to all uh, with whom we come into contact. So, Skipping over the, in Micah 6, 8, Hesed, as I talked a little bit about before, and the whole idea of humility, but I should hope that you don't skip over the concept of humility, we return, or turn to, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this will be something that I'll pick up in the next program, and of course will apply to climate justice. But let me leave you with this. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. Poor translation, actually. It's bandits. I'll talk more about that in future programs. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levi also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you do spend, when I return I will repay you. Which of these three do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. A couple of things to briefly note before we finish for this program. It's always self-justifying to somehow limit the love of God to those most like us. Jesus calls us beyond our own in-group, our own nationality, our own religious tradition, and I don't just mean denomination, but actually our own religious tradition, our own sexuality, our, you name it. And as I'll tease out a few programs down the track, our own species. We try and limit what we're told to do, and this parable breaks through by giving a Samaritan the sworn uh, enemy or the, the half cousins of the Jews as an example. And the church in the public sphere when it comes to issues of justice doesn't come off very well. And in Jesus' parable, two religious figures, a priest and a Levite are the ones who refuse to show mercy to the man their own, a Jew in need. If you can't already see the echoes of what we should be doing in a warming world, well, I'm going to tease those ideas out for you in future programs. But it should be pretty clear when we have the opportunity to bind the wounds of others, be it their own fault or the fault of others, or indeed through climate change and other environmental aspects of the Anthropocene, our fault, how much more should we restore them to their dignity as human beings made in the image of God. But, as I say, I will deal with this in another program. Thanks for listening, and God bless you. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison, with the Wichita State University Chamber Players, and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.